So what happened was family offices wanted to do direct deals and they basically, their thought process, which was myopic, is basically, well, why should I pay an expert 220 if I could do it myself? So that, that's what they did. So they basically bypassed right. the private equity firm, they did direct deals and they made money and they made a lot of money because everything went up. Let's get ready to scale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. And today with me, I have Ron Diamond. He is a very, very interesting guest. I want to tell you a little bit about Ron, um, but uh, we'd like to, uh, before I do that, welcome Ron to the show. Hey, Ron, how are you doing today? Terrific. Glad to be here. And thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we invest with... Um, investors um, from all over the US. Uh, and some of our investors are also family offices. And the high net worth individuals that are not family offices yet, um, often are very interested in knowing what family offices do. And Ron um, has been invest has been working with family offices for many, many years. So um, he's Ron is the founder and chairman of Diamond Wealth, and Diamond Wealth is a company that invests in private markets like private equity, venture capital, and real estate. And the company um, has their visions, and they focus on many, many areas that are very relevant for family offices, from uh, philanthropy, wealth transfer, investment banking, social impact governance, essentially everything that. Um, a family office needs in order to run properly. And um, the company represents over a hundred family offices, you know, ranging in size from 250 million all the way to 30 billion. Um, in addition to that, uh, Ron is also a board member of many investment firms such as Aspen Institute, Wellesley Asset Management, and Fin Capital, just to, you know, name a few. Um, and before, um, and prior to establishing uh, his company, uh, Ron uh, founded Pinnacle Capital. That was a hedge fund that was sold to an international investment firm. And then before that, um, Ron served as a senior managing director at Bear Stearns. Um, and he holds a BA in economics from Northwestern University. So a very impressive uh, bio. So um Again, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating, and I've been um, hearing a lot of people speak about it. I've attended many conferences where there were discussions around family office trends. What are family office, you know, what are family offices are doing right now? What do they focus on? How have they changed their view of the market. So, you know, if you can, you know, share anything um, with us about how family offices, you know, what's their view of the market today and what are the trends when it comes to investing? I think that would be really, really interesting to uh, our listeners. Sure. Well, let me start a um, little history because people hear the term family office and they don't understand what it is. Um, you can go back to the Medici's a thousand years ago is really the first family office. But in the U.S., Rockefeller and Vanderbilt, late 1800s, 
But in the U.S., the way you, we hear family offices now, 68% of family offices started since 2000, and half of those started since the crash. So this is a very new phenomenon. And people just assume because you're a family office, you're necessarily sophisticated and, a, and an expert in different things. Um, most of the family offices are very inefficient, very fragmented, and very siloed. The model doesn't work because only 25% make it to the second generation, 10 make it to the third, five make it to the fourth. But what's happening is you've had so much money being made in such a short period of time now that more and more people are creating family offices. Um, you've got $84.4 trillion coming downstream from the baby boomers to the next gen in the next 20 years, which will be the largest transfer of wealth in history. That's going to really propel everything. And so this, the family office market, which is large, is going to get even larger. So just to put it in context, there's currently about $6.5 trillion in, in globally in all hedge funds. There's $10 trillion today, $10 trillion in family offices. You combine that with the fact that there's $84.4 trillion coming downstream, the, the family office market will be larger than the private equity and venture capital markets combined. Having said that, we're still very early. You're in the second, maybe third inning in the evolution of family offices, and it's going to take time. So just because family offices think and say things, you've got the sophisticated family offices, which are maybe 5 to 10% of them. And then 90 to 95% of them, at least in my opinion, um, need to, to, to hire additional staff to beef up in order to become institutional. And, you know, to add to that, um, what's also interesting is to see how generations are different. So the first and second generation are many times still focused on the business, um, coming to the office every day, at least from you know my my point of view, from what I'm seeing, and then you have the newer generation who is more focused on philanthropy, on social impact, who's not necessarily interested um, in coming to the office every day or you know doing uh, being part of the grind and and work as hard. And you have that tension between first or second generation and the new generation coming in. So if you add the lack of sophistication to that, um, you know, I think there's probably uh, going to be some issues moving, you know, forward if you're kind of combining um, all those issues. So if and, and you're saying that they're not um, the, the many of them are not sophisticated. So how do they keep growing their wealth if there's you know, if, if they don't have, you know, the bandwidth or the tools to actually handle their finances and their assets. All right. So let's look at, let's look at it from a time frame. 68% started since 2000, half since the crash. So half of them since 2008. Post-crash, pre-COVID, I don't care what you invested in, you made money. Private equity, interest rates were zero. So private equity, venture capital, real mm -hmm. estate, the stock market, Bitcoin, whatever you invested in went up. So what happened was family offices wanted to do direct deals and they basically, their thought process, which was myopic, is basically, well, why should I pay an expert 220 if I could do it myself? So that, that's what they did. So they basically bypassed right. the private equity firm, they did direct deals and they made money and they made a lot of money because everything went up until it didn't. So about 18 months ago, when they started raising the interest rates, things changed. So I think you're going to see a pushback. So um, you had previously not seen a huge increase in the number of family offices who were doing direct investments, and that worked because everyone was making money. Now that's not working. So Carter did a study uh, 
Series B average deals down like 50%. Series C average deals down like 75%. So family offices are actually losing money in many deals right now. So I think there's going to be a retrenchment in that. And I think more and more family offices are going to morph into multifamily offices and not necessarily try to do it alone. Very interesting. Um, and I, I definitely can tell that we feel that in real estate, things you know have shifted dramatically. Um, and even though I, I, I know that not all deals, you know, not all exits um, made money and not all investors made money in the last, um, you know, five, seven years, but um, it, it was definitely easier um, to, to make a profit around, uh, I would say probably six to eight months after COVID started in March of 2020. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. So when it comes to family offices, you know, right now, what's their view of the market? Are they still bullish when it comes to the market? And it's probably different between, you know, VC and, um, you know, equities and, and real estate. What can you share with us when it comes to their, you know, their point of view? Well, going back to your world, the real estate world, yes, it was easier to make money six months into COVID. But remember, it wasn't because of COVID, it was because interest rates were zero. So when interest rates are zero, it's not that complicated. So you've got huge tailwinds behind you. I think what's going to happen now is over the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to see a lot of distress. You're going to see a lot of these uh, real estate developers trying to refi and they're not going to be able to. You can see a lot of these um, family offices that went into these deals when everything went up and now all of a sudden they have to refinance at much higher rates and they're going to, they could lose the property. So I think you're going to see a huge shift in what's happening. And a lot of the, um, family offices that had done these, like I said, directly, are now going to focus more on using experts for that. I, I think that family offices, again, it's hard to, when I say the word family office, we work closely with some of the sophisticated, so the Pritzkers and the Crowns and the Delft, they've institutionalized it. So they can compete directly with Carlisle and Blackstone. And I would argue um, that they've got a better model because they've got patient capital. That's the biggest advantage yeah. that family offices have. And I'll touch on that in a minute. But the vast majority of the family offices, I would say almost 80% of the family offices, in my opinion, shouldn't exist the way they exist. I don't make any judgment. Anybody who makes any money with whatever they do, they can do whatever they want. Um, a lot of family offices, they sell a company, a widget company for $50 million. It's not enough money to have a family. It's a lot of money, but it's not enough money to have a family office. In order for it to make economic sense to have a family office and you could reverse engineer it, you need a minimum of $250 million if you're going to invest in direct deals. There's a ton of family offices that are less than that. And again, I make no value, no judgment. They could do whatever they want with it, but I'm just telling them they would be better off with a multifamily office because rather than paying for your own accountant, paying for your own attorney, paying for your own admin, you split it with 10 to 20 families. So the multifamily office, which is the market anywhere between usually 5 million to 250 million, that market is, I think, going to really, really explode. The single family office, um, you'll see consolidation in it and you'll see more of the, of the smarter families network with it. But right now it's very siloed. And one of the big things that family offices want to do is they want to network with other family offices. I speak at a lot of these conferences and the conferences, in, there's some good ones, but most of them are pay to play. So if you're speaking on real estate, you might be terrific at what you do. You might be horrible, but I know you spent 25 grand. So why should I be going to a conference? Be, so it's a pay to play model. We put together a conference. 
I had a theory. I chaired the Disruptive Technology Center at Stanford University. I said, let's put together a conference that I would tell like the families that we work with they should go to. Because my family, the families we work with would just say, which conferences should I go to? I'm like, none or very few. Um, they're not worth it. So my thought process was, we don't need to make money, right? So I had Kirkland and Ellis, we do a lot of work with, and EY, we do a lot of work with, and I had them sponsor the conference. And I basically said, look, all I want to do, I'll get you the best speakers in the world, and I'll get you great topics. It's all I want to do. You guys do everything else. And they agreed. So we did that. So this was during COVID. We had 880 families from six continents on the call during COVID. It was a Zoom call. And it wasn't because I put together such a conference. I didn't really do anything. I just got the speakers, but it was all educational. So we had people like Paul Carbone, who runs the Pritzker family office. He wasn't pitching a fund. He was just saying, here's how we diligence deals to do direct investment. In your world, we had Tim Callahan, from, um, who's Sam Zell's former partner. He wasn't raising money for a real estate fund. He was just saying, here's how he thinks the office market's going to play out in the next five to 10 years. And then lastly, we had Denise Illich from Little Caesars, who really, her family and the Gilberts almost single-handedly re helped to rebuild Detroit. She wasn't telling people to donate to her charity. She was just saying, if you're going to be philanthropic, here's how you might want to scale it. So it was pure. And it was educational. And that's what's needed in the marketplace. So we're in the process. I can't announce it yet. But in the next 90 days, we're working with a one of the top universities in the world, and we are creating a family office initiative, which will be announced um, within the next 60 to 90 days. That's what, this, in my opinion, that's what family offices need. They need a, a safe place to network, to get content where you don't have service providers with an agenda. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital. Be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. Yeah, yeah, I can. I, I hear you on that one. Um, it does seem like many events when when you go to your mostly as a family office, you're being sold, and and people don't want to be in places where and you know where they're going to be sold, but they will pay attention and they will give you their time of day if they're going to gain something out of it. If they're going to get education, you know, some tips, some you know, fresh perspective. Um, that's it's it's essentially providing value and then the business will follow it's it's almost it's it's even better than standing and pitching you know a fund is giving you know giving family offices um you know value they know if they're if they like you and what you have to say they'll research you they'll they'll know what what you're doing what you have to offer um so it's kind of reversing the model no, in a way. We had, look, we had Ryan Harris friend. He, sp he runs the family office division for Kirkland and Ellis. Terrific guy. Great mm -hmm. firm. Um, you know, he was talking about different ways to, you could write off different parts of non-family office members. He was just educating people. He wasn't selling anything. And what happens yeah. is when a family office or anybody, when you hear somebody and they, they're, they're thoughtful and articulate, 
and, and they have good ideas, that's the best way to sell, right? Yeah. But it's counterintuitive because you want to just say you're trying to raise money for this fund. But really, the in order to get the sophisticated investors, they want to know that you're smart and they want to know that you're mm -hmm. authentic. So by sh adding value, by giving before you're getting, that's really the key. And that, in, in general, doesn't exist in the marketplace. So I, I, I think you've got huge amounts of money in very inefficient hands. I think that over the next three to five years, we're, we're starting to become at an inflection point, and that's going to slowly change. And I think that as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the mid-80s because it was a better model, I used to run a hedge fund. So if you're running a company and every 90 days you've got to report to me or a guy in Wall Street, it's a horrible way to run your business. You're basically managing your earnings. But if so, private equity and venture capital exploded because 2% covered the overhead, 20%, I only make money. If you make money, it was a better model. Then what happened? And again, I get in trouble for saying this sometimes, but not all, but many of the private equity firms, they bastardize the business. It's become an AUM game and the funds are too big. And a perfect example is I have a friend who did a roll up of logistics companies. He needed $150 million and the placement agent from New York got him 500 million. And my friend said, terrific, I just need 150 and let's get started. The placement agent came to his apartment. This could only happen in New York. It literally came to his apartment and wrote down 2% of 500 million equals X, 2% of 150 million equals Y. What am I missing? So my friend, who was a bit incredulous, said, well, here's what you're missing. Um, if I do what you want me to do, there won't be a fund too, because I can't deploy the other 350 million officially. I can deploy mm -hmm. 150 million, but not the other 350. So if I do what you want me to do, I'm going to have to go to B and C rated assets and the fund, the performance won't be as good. So I'm not an idiot. I understand I personally would make more money 2% of $500 million is more than 2% of $150 million. So from a myopic standpoint, I would be doing better short term, but medium and long term, it's not good for the investors. That to me is a microcosm of what's wrong with the industry. Again, it's not all. And I always get pushback from my private equity friends. I'm not saying all private equity firms. I'm saying many private equity firms. And they've just been, it's become an AUM game. It's a conflict of interest. And the biggest advantage, look, the biggest advantage the family offices have, they've got patient capital. So what is patient capital? If you look at the way companies are bought today, a, a private equity firm will buy a family business, right? And they'll buy a widget company and they'll buy a second or third generation family. The private equity firm will hold it for three to four years, sell it. They'll sell it to private equity firm B. They'll hold it for three, four years, sell it to private equity firm C. Right. And they do that. It's not bad. Their model, their compensation structure is they're comped to flip companies every three to five years. So if you look over a 20 year period and you look at the friction, the transaction costs and the disruption business of buying and selling a company four times versus a family office who could buy it, hold it, compound it, the, it's not even close. So it's a much better model. The, the, the problem is that, you know, it, it, the, the model for family off for private equity and venture capital is structured where they're compensated to flip companies every three to five years. So you know what they're going to do? They're going to flip companies every three to five years, even if long term, it would make more sense to do it. So I, I, I think we're still not there yet because most family offices don't have the infrastructure to do this, but you do have some and you will have more. And this is changing. So as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the early mid-80s, 
I believe family offices are starting to and will ultimately disrupt, not replace, but disrupt private equity and venture capital. And it's based on patient capital. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting um, point because, you know, when I'm thinking about how private investors, high net worth, older high net worth invest in real estate and how family offices invest in real estate, many family offices, and I've, we've bought assets from some of them, um, they usually buy and hold and they don't sell. So they right. ride the wave, you know, if when times are good, they pull up cash flow. Um, when when uh, the economy permits, when the assets and why increases enough, they refine, pull up, you know, some pull up some some equity. Um, and they don't generally sell. I've seen I've seen some families that actually sold uh, in the past, I would say two years or so, decide to sell their entire portfolio with the intention to buy. At, at the low. And that's why they've essentially sold their assets to several um, sponsors, several owners, not as a portfolio. And they, and they said, and I, you know, we were one of the companies uh, that bought an asset from them and they said, we want to, to um, uh, kind of spread, um, you know, to, to um, take our relationship, expand our relationships. So when we are ready to buy again, we have relationships with more owners uh, and we're going to be back buying our own, you know, assets. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that we are considering at Blake is uh, to partner with family offices and allow them to uh, essentially buy assets when we're selling, when it's time to sell after three to five years, because that's what our investors, you know, prefer. And then, we would like to stay there. That's how I believe you can really build wealth, not by flipping, you know, um, assets every five years, but really holding the asset as long as you're truly patient, as long as you're willing to put more equity as needed, you know, over the years. So I just, I found it really interesting that you mentioned that because I think it's something that I don't think anyone else is offering this to family offices, the opportunity. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting. Char yeah. Charlie Munger just passed away, uh, yeah. years ago. Yep. And one of the things he said, um, you don't make the money on the buy and you don't make the money on the sell. You make the money on the wait and just mm -hmm. wait it. Yeah. And that's really the model for family offices. It, it's not complicated. We, yeah. Wall Street complicates things. It's not complicated. Yep, absolutely. How do you see um, or how would you recommend family offices and investors to um, diversify their portfolio right now, knowing what you know about the economy and knowing that you know the Feds next year may start cutting rates. We don't know when that's going to happen. I'm assuming it will happen. Um, my prediction is probably Q3 of 2024, but how would you recommend family offices to uh, diversify their portfolio? Here's what I recommend family offices do. Unless... They've built up an infrastructure like the Pritzkers or the Crowns or the Dells, and they've institutionalized it. And that's a very small percentage. What they should do is wherever they made their money, that's what they should invest in. So if they made their money in real estate, they should stay mm -hmm. laser focused in real estate. If they made their money in tech, they should stay laser focused in tech. Everything else, they should outsource to people that are smarter than them in different areas. The biggest obstacle to many of these family offices is the ego of the patriarch or patriarch. And just because you were able to sell Beanie Babies, and I'm not picking, actually I am picking on Ty a little bit, but just because you're able to sell Beanie Babies doesn't mean you can buy hotels. It's a different skill set. Yeah. So 
I, I think you've got people are starting it and it started to happen when rates went up in real estate. So I think what I would what I tell people is stay in your lane, focus on what you know, because you've got you can create alpha and in, in what you can do. Um, let other people do everything else. It, it's very hard to create alpha. You could financial engineer anything. I could financial engineer a company and make, yeah. make money on it by selling a bunch of assets and, and doing things. That's very myopic. But long-term alpha, you need to operate. And that's what family offices do. They operate. So they should operate and focus on where they made their money. Everything else, in my opinion, they should outsource unless they're large enough where they've institutionalized it and they've got everything in-house. Which takes, you know, it takes a long time and it's extremely expensive. Um, and I really think that it, it makes sense if some, if a family office wants to do that, they need to bring uh, extremely experienced people to actually help them hire the right people, explain how the org chart needs to look like, because it's it's not easy to understand even what your needs I'll are. Give you perfect, I'll give you a perfect, so I, I was talking to Tony Pritzker, I did a podcast with Tony mm -hmm. Pritzker, and what he did is, one of the reasons they're so successful, I mean, he's a very smart guy, um, but he, he was able, he hired Paul Carbone. How was he able to hire Paul Carbone? The most family offices, if, they, if they're going to spend a half million dollars to invest in somebody, most of them look at that as a cost. Like, I'm going to pay this kid out of Stanford $500,000. It costs me $500,000. If Carlisle or Blackstone pays a kid $500,000, they look at that kid as a potential $20 million profit center. So it's nuanced, but it's not a cost. It's a profit center. And until family offices start realizing that in order to get the best talent, you have to compensate them. You can't cut corners or else you're not going to get the best talent. And in order to compete with the Carlisles or the Blackstones, you have to do things like give loans or give lines of credit or, or let them invest and take part of the carry. You have to let them do it. Very few families understand that. I think Tony Pritzker got it and JB got it spot on, but I think they're the exception. They're not the rule. All right. Um, Ron, any last, um, you know, thoughts about the market, family offices uh, in general, anything you want to leave our uh, listeners with? Um, I, I, look, I would, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm in this family office world. It, 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 it's, it's changing every day and it's changing mm -hmm. in real time. So it, it is fascinating. Um, I, I think that um, for people who want to work with family offices, understand one thing. The first, second, and third thing a family office wants to know is, can I trust this person? And the fourth thing is, what's your track record? Right. An institution that's flipped, they want to know what's your one, three, five, your track record, what's your biggest drawdown. This business is a hundred based on relationships and it's built because a lot of people lost confidence and trust in wall street this is a relationship business and that's the only way you're going to get into work with family offices by having them trust you and then think oh they're actually good at what they do 100 percent, 100 percent. i always say that family offices bet on the jockey not on the horse it takes time to gain their trust to build relationships um but it's 100 percent true they're not out there looking for the best fund they're not they they start their their search or it actually they don't really search but they're and they're more likely to work with someone that runs in their circle or someone that you know they they know through um you know mutual friends or acquaintances 
Well, that's it for today. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. That was it for today. If you would like to speak with my team about real estate investing, go to our website, www.bluelake-capital.com. Until then, be bold, be brave, keep pushing forward, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.